Well, happy Thanksgiving. I'm never good at doing messages that are related to uh, seasonal calendar events. Uh, but this time, there's something on my heart that does directly relate to the to the season we're in that we call Thanksgiving. And uh, in order to get to that point, I've got to lay a, a few foundations for what I really want to get to today. Because the title of this message doesn't seem to, at first glance, relate at all to Thanksgiving. But if you'll stick with me, I think you'll see uh, the importance of what we're going to examine for the next hour. First of all, isn't it amazing how the word Thanksgiving has deteriorated like so many other important words in our, in our language? When Thanksgiving was a verb... You you heard the word, and your response to the word was, hmm, we give thanks at Thanksgiving. But somewhere over the decades, it has deteriorated down to a noun, which we just refer to in passing as, what are you going to do Thanksgiving weekend? Or where will you spend Thanksgiving? Or uh, are you going to watch the game on Thanksgiving? And without even realizing it, by, by the word becoming a noun instead of a verb, it becomes neither. Uh, it is no longer a day of thanks. It is a day of various other things, which I don't need to list because we all know them too well. And even for those listening across the ocean who are not participants in the American version of Thanksgiving, you have other manifestations of this in your own culture. Uh, Eucharist means the great thanksgiving. It's the great celebration. Uh, and yet how many of, uh, of those who participate in a Eucharist don't even think in terms of giving thanks? Now, the loss of this word reflects the loss of its reality that parallels our hearts a word only loses meaning when, when the meaning loses meaning. The word itself doesn't deteriorate us. We deteriorate the word. We don't un, un, undo the reality behind the word uh, because the word has changed. The word changes because we who speak the word no longer have any conscious awareness of what the word meant. So when I say happy Thanksgiving, what am I, what am I exactly saying? I'm, I'm saying I want you to have a happy time on a day that we used to set aside to give thanks to God. So it makes it about me and you instead of about God, which is pretty much what most everything in our culture, Christian culture, does today. Everything is about me and you and the consumer, the Christian consumer. It's not about God. And so as a result of this, we, uh, we've lost a great deal. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that. In Psalm 136, you have one of the great psalms of thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made the heavens with great skill, for his mercy endures forever. To him who spreads out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. Then from verse 10 all the way down to verse 22, it is a giving of thanks to God for his deliverance from enemies. And then finally from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, verse 26, it's a giving of thanks to God for his remembrance toward all those who are in difficulty and his provision of life and sustenance for all creation. It begins with thanksgiving to God for who God is, then for what God has done, then for what God has done on our behalf, then for what God does for those that we don't even know and are not related to. But you notice 
the cosmology of this great thanksgiving begins in not just the heavens, but above the heavens with the God who created the heavens and then descends down through the heavens to the natural order of sun, moon, and stars and then down to the earth, then deals with deliverance from evil and then finally uh, concludes with a great thanksgiving to God for his provision for all creation. Now, the the blessings in, in Hebrew... Uh, the the barukas the the offerings of thanks and blessing the 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 rabbis said you should never participate in anything of this earth that's good without remembering first to offer a blessing for it that's where we get the whole idea of saying quote the blessing over the food we don't really we misunderstand that you don't bless the food god's already blessed the food but you bless the lord you give thanks to the lord for the giving of the food and so uh, in rabbinical literature, and of course in the scriptures, there's this pattern of recognizing whatever good you've got has come from the hand of one who is himself good, and you acknowledge that goodness and give thanks for it, and that helps keep you in proper balance. It helps keep, you, uh, keep the universe in, in proper order in your thinking. Now when you, when you lose that, then your your world begins to turn perverse. It begins to turn upside down. And good becomes evil and evil becomes good eventually. Once, once this world completes its turn from right side up to upside down, then you don't see things from a God-centered cosmology, but you begin to see everything from your point of view. Not just it, See, it's not just a man-centered cosmology but it becomes an, a me-centered cosmology. I mean, even a man-centered cosmology is a little bit bigger than, than just yourself. This is why there's, there's people who don't believe in God, but they have a, a vision for humanity, and they care about, quote, humanity. And in some, uh, some cases, they actually do try to do something to help humanity. But for the most part, we, we have become people who don't even see a man-centered cosmology. We see us. And us is too big a word. It's really me. Now, to some degree, please don't misunderstand me. I can't help but see some things from my point of view because I am a me. I can't help being a me. I, I can't help being uh, preoccupied with, with my backache or, or my swollen big toe or my feeling of inconvenience when the bus is late or my frustration that the air conditioning in the restaurant isn't working. I live in my body. My body picks up uh, responses from the atmosphere I'm in. And and I live inside here. I can't go anywhere else. (laughs) So it, it's kind of it's kind of a waste of time to rebuke ourselves for being self-centered to some degree. We can't help that. What we can help is staying in that mindset and letting it take over our whole world. And we are. I, I'm watching it from my little tiny point of view. I'm I'm watching it take over people's lives and uh, squash them down to a tiny little squeaky place where it's really hard to live and breathe and move. And uh, God is God is small to them, and their world is big to them. And uh, if their world is wounded, then the wound is huge, and the God who could come and rescue them, who would descend from the highest heavens down to where they are, which is how the scripture describes God's coming to us. He who sits over the circle of the earth before whom all creation is like grasshoppers descends to us who have a broken heart. And uh, in that context, there's a sense of, of, of he's coming to rescue. He's coming to deliver. He's not only the creator of the heavens and the earth, but he somehow, in the midst of being this vast, unimaginably awesome being who created this 
this incredible, uh, awesome universe cares about whether my husband or wife has betrayed me or whether my child is on drugs or whether my boss has given uh, my promotion to someone else. When he, he knew it was I, I was the one who deserved it. Yes, God, see God, for God to be good, A.W. Tozer said, for God to be good, it means everything matters to him. For God to be good, it means that everything matters to him. And so, it, it's kind of funny, I, I want, what I, for your sake, I want us to be able to come back up to a God-centered cosmology so that when you look at your own hurts and struggles, you don't feel the aloneness in them that you tend to feel because you have a self-centered cosmology. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, the paradox of this is I'm, I want to lift you back up, lift, lift your eyes up. That's why the Bible says lift up your eyes. You have to lift up your eyes and see from, from whence does your help come. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It doesn't come from the hills. What he's saying there is, I will, I will look at the hills around me and their smallness compared to the, the one who created them. And I'll recognize that the, the, the false gods worshipped by the people of the hills have no help for me. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. There's no help there. Where does my help come from? I will, then he says, I will, I will look up to the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a pattern that runs throughout the entire scriptures. Uh, wherever there's a cry for help for me personally in the scriptures, whether it's in Isaiah or the Psalms, various other places, we're going to look at a few of them, but there are only a few. We, we don't have time to look at all of them. But the pattern that you see always in these is I who am down here in my little difficulty, whatever it may be, and it may be a huge difficulty from your point of view, but that's the whole point. The, the, the writer of Scripture, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is saying, I, for me to get out of this little difficulty I'm in that is so big for me, it's crushing me, I lift up my eyes to the one who created heaven and earth. This pattern is repeated over and over. If, you, if you're going to come up out of your depression or out of your sorrow or out of your anger or out of your um, whatever it may be, you, you look up to the one who is so vast and so unapproachable and so unknowable apart from his descent to you. And by looking up at him, crying out to him, you are expressing to him your confidence that though he is is immense and holy and omnipotent, your trust is in him to come and, and rescue you. See, if you have a man-centered cosmology, or worse, a self-centered cosmology, what you first do is you look at yourself and your world becomes the big universe. And, and God is this tiny little concept floating around in the ocean of your huge self-awareness. And uh, if, that's, if that's the perverse, backwards, upside-down cosmology you live in, there's no hope. There is, there's no one to look up to, to, to call out to. And this actually uh, is an affirmation of the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3. God is not good. He does not have your best interest at heart. Uh, he is a, a cosmic uh, game player and uh, abuser who wants you to suffer and, and uh, predestined that you suffer so he can get glory out of it. That's, that's the idea there, that the powers of darkness would affirm. Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5, he counts the number of the stars. He gives them names, calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. And then right in the same context, what does it say? He also heals the broken in heart. Uh, look at Isaiah 40, verses 22 through 27. 
He who is enthroned above the circle of the earth, before whom the inhabitants are as grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, he reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. He blows on them and they wither. To whom will you liken me, says the Lord? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. And listen to how it shifts in verse 27 and following. So why will you say, O Israel, or O Clay, or O Jimmy, or O Susan, or whoever you are, why will you say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me is hidden from the Lord? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not weary or tire? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he increases power. Even youths may grow weary and tired, and strong young men stumble badly. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, yet also with those who have a broken and a contrite heart in order to revive the spirit of the broken and the heart of the contrite ones. David writes in Psalm 8, When I consider the heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have appointed, what is man that you would take thought of him, or the son of man that you would come to rescue him? That, if you're reading the King James Version, when it says visit him, that word visit literally means to come and rescue. It doesn't mean come down and have a cup of tea with, with you, although the Lord will do that too, but the idea here is that, that when I think of the vastness of the universe, which uh, the, the writers of Scripture exhort me to do, I, David says, my first thought is, well, what is man? Well, here's a funny thing. I'm telling you to keep God at the forefront and center of your universe. But it looks very much like God keeps you at the center of his universe. The reason I say that is many years ago, the famous philosopher and uh, Christian thinker and mathematician Pascal made the statement, I think, under the anointing of the Spirit. He said, I believe that man is halfway between the immensity above him and that which is infinitesimally small below him. Now, at the time he said that, he had some scientific reason to say it, but he didn't have... Uh, any way of proving it. But in the last several years, as, uh, as science has continued to make progress in both its astronomical and its microscopic abilities to discern, this is what the result of the study has been. Dr. Richard Swenson writes these words in his book, More Than Meets the Eye. When God set out to create a human-oriented universe. He apparently showed a preference for dimensional symmetry. The dimensions of the largest created entity, namely the entire universe, are 10 to the 27th power meters in size, while the dimensions of the smallest subatomic particles are 10 minus 26 to, to the minus 26 power meters in size. Humans at about one meter fall precisely in the middle. When astrophysicist Joel Primick was asked about the significance of this finding, he commented simply, it does make for a soul-satisfying cosmology. End quote. Everything above us and everything below us is the same dimension. And we are at the center of it. And symbolically, this could not be more clear uh, that God's answer to David in Psalm 8 when he says, what is man that you would 
think of us or or come to rescue us. God is saying, I'll tell you what you are. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You are the apple of my eye. You are my child. You are my image. You are everything to me, and I will do everything necessary to come to you and rescue you. That's the answer to that question. Now, if you could if if you could put yourself in the mindset of of an ancient person for whom the stars are still mysteries and and sources of wonder and you could think like they thought you would find uh, an immediate cessation of modern uh depression and boredom and uh existential loneliness that is eating away at the soul of even so-called believers. I meet so many Christians today who, I'm not saying they're not Christians, I'm not saying they're not real believers, I'm not saying they don't belong to God, I'm not saying they won't go to heaven when they die, I obviously have no ability to discern those things. But from my point of view, they seem to be not much different than a a lost pagan. They may have all the right belief systems where it comes to their eternal salvation, and they have a hope to some degree that when they die they're going to heaven. But there's, other than that, there's there's not a great deal of of a sense of uh, joy. See, joy comes from awe, and awe and wonder come from uh, uh, having a right view of God. And this all produces worship in us. And the worship releases all kinds of forces for our good. See, the marvelous thing is the more you focus on God, the more God releases grace on your behalf. And I, I'm not saying that you, you you do something nice for God and God does something nice for you. That That's silly. What I'm saying is the more you focus on reality as it really is, the more reality manifests itself to you in a way that begins to lubricate your life, to oil, to anoint your life, to to bring you to a point where you can live and move and have your being in God. And uh, so getting back to my uh, feeble attempt to help you think like this, if you could put yourself in the mindset of an ancient person, one for whom the cosmos still evokes a sense of awe and wonder and even worship, then if you could go from that point of awe and wonder into real worship, you look up and, and, and see what Isaiah saw. Look up and see the heavens and then go beyond the heavens to the one who made them. And you begin to interact with with that great, awesome, unknowable, unapproachable, holy being. And then, to your utter amazement, you find that that awesome being is focused on you. I mean, it's one thing for you to look up and see the universe, but how would you react if the moon called your name? Now, I'll tell you a a terrible negative version of this. I hate to have to use a negative picture to get the point across, but maybe it'll serve some good. Uh, I am acquainted with a missionary who I will not name, who in a moment of of, uh, misguided intercession and spiritual warfare took authority over the principality and power over a certain uh, demonically controlled European city. And uh, when she got back to her hotel, standing on the veranda overlooking the street, the the moon was full. And uh, her testimony is, and I believe her because she's a woman of utmost integrity, and I have no reason to doubt this story. She says that the moon began to come down literally into her room and took the form of of a being that she had to plead the blood of Jesus against in order to protect herself from its presence. 
she had, in occult circles, there's this concept that is actually called calling down the moon. Well, she had not in any way participated in anything occult. She thought she was praying uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. She found out later, of course, she had not been directed by the Holy Spirit, but, but that's a whole other subject which I won't try to get into, but we all know, I hope by now, that you don't take on principalities and powers in your own strength and try to do warfare with them. Uh, you you listen to God and you pray. Usually, uh, if you're praying for a city uh, on that level, you need to be praying in a group anyway, unless you have been given clear direction from the Holy Spirit how to pray. But the point is, this thing came down into her room. Well, now, I, I, I'm using a negative to hopefully try to create for you a positive for two hours, she battled against this thing until finally uh, there was a sense of release uh, and the thing disappeared and left her room. But uh, uh, let me just say, if you have a hard time with the, that story, it's only because you have a, an incredibly materialistic and unbiblical mindset to be honest. I mean, if, if that stretches your credulity, it only shows how much you're influenced by modernism instead of scripture. But anyway, uh, try to think of that in a more positive way. I mean, turn, turn it around to the positive. How, how would you react if uh, while you were praying uh, in the moonlight one night, uh, uh, a star comes down and manifests itself in the room and uh, it turns out to be not a star, but the creator of the stars, the bright and morning star. That, I hope, will give you some kind of, a, of an idea. I mean, you, you begin to get a picture of what the, what the shepherds felt when uh, they were abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and you bet they were sore afraid. And so the angel's first word is, don't be afraid, which is, seems like what they always have to say. Don't be afraid. For unto you is born this day in the city of David the Savior of the world, the creator of the, of the heavens and the earth has come down to you through the womb of a woman and is now at this moment lying in a manger. And they went immediately to see this great sight. Well, I mean, yeah, they did. Of course they did. Are you, are you, are you getting this? See, if, 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 if what I'm saying can draw you even for five minutes out of your self-centered pain, I'm not making fun of anybody's pain. I'm not disdaining your suffering. I'm just saying if you could just come out of it a little bit and look up and see majesty and glory and awesome, unapproachable light above you that created all things and, 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 and just be caught up in that for a moment. That's only half of it, by the way. That is, I'm trying to get you to look up and see the glory because that's only the first half. See, the first half is to see the magnificence and glory. That's how the scripture lays it out. All these scriptures that we just looked at, Psalm 147, Isaiah 40, um, Isaiah 57, Psalm 8, all these chapters, all these verses say the same thing. What they're saying basically is look up and be caught up in the awesome glory of God. And then the second part, know that the one who created these things knows your name and is personally and intimately and even passionately concerned about you. See, when you hear me or other people exhorting us to stop being self-centered and to get God-centered and to think about God and to, to quit talking about ourselves all the time and, and quit singing about ourselves, even, I'm sorry to say it again, but so many of our songs where we, we sing about our response to God, they, they bore me out of my mind. I don't need to know what your psyche is saying about God.
point me to that God. Anyway, the whole purpose God has in getting you God-centered is so you can be set free. I mean, see, God is so overflowing in abundance in, in, in goodness and love that his, his whole motivation toward getting you to be God-centered is so... I mean, if God is the best there is and God loves you, then God wants you to have the best. Therefore, the only way God can give you the best is give you, give you himself. I mean, can you see that? So getting your eyes lifted up and coming into a sense of wonder, a sense of majesty, I love that word, is the first portal of entry into a whole nother dimension of living. Now, we began our time together talking about the fact that we have become the opposite of everything I've just been talking about. We are not a God-centered people. Our eyes are not lifted up uh, to God. We, we are not moved with awe and wonder toward worship. We are not even man-centered. We are me-centered. We don't even realize how much we are me-centered because we live in a culture that is so me-centered that there's no communication between us to exhort us to something greater than ourselves. So even Christian bookstores are filled with titles that point to how God can bless me, take care of me, improve me, help me. And uh, I've already made mention of how even our worship services do that. So uh, this is a source of continuous uh disintegration in people's lives. Uh, This means that if they're looking down instead of up, they are disintegrating instead of integrating. They are diminishing instead of expanding. They are uh, becoming darker instead of more filled with light. And uh, though I'm speaking in extremes, I, I, I want you to understand that I do believe that this is a very dangerous thing And it must be arrested and reversed in the hearts of each individual. And so in order to address this concern in a a more detailed way, I need to give you a little bit of background. In all of our conferences, Mary and I will at some point deal with the subject of forgiving the unforgivable. And in illustrating the struggle to forgive the unforgivable, we tell a story uh, a true story. It's not a. It's not a composite story. It's a true, uh, factual event uh, in the life of a dear woman that we helped walk through the healing of the memories of terrible childhood sexual and physical abuse at the hands of her father. And in the midst of this story, uh, I simply tell what happened, and so I want to tell here how we tell that story. Some of you have heard it many times, but I'm I'm seeking to illustrate another point by retelling it, so just bear with me. After months of laboring with her to work through uh, the the healing of the memories of unspeakable abuse, when she began to recover her strength and recover her her willpower and recover her her power of concentration and, and volition, she walked in my office one day unannounced, uh, and rather angry, walked around my desk, looked me in the eye, and said, I just want to know one thing you have not clarified in all of our prayer time together. Where was Jesus when all this was happening to me? Where was God? Now, there rose up in me a a kind of righteous anger, and I say this carefully because I'm not trying to say that it was my righteousness or even my anger. But the only thing I can liken it to is maybe Aslan's growl uh, in in the Chronicles when when on certain occasions Aslan is, is angry. He doesn't roar, but there's just a low growl. Uh, that kind of puts everybody in, in proper perspective uh, is how they need to be responding to Aslan at that moment. 
and and that's what felt like was coming up in me. And I heard myself say to her, and I always point out in this story, this is not the way I would have said it because I was so angry at her father, I was having to work through my own unforgiveness toward the man for what he had done to, to this woman as a child. Thankfully, he was already you know, dead. But uh, I heard myself say to her, I'll tell you where Jesus was. He was hanging on a cross between heaven and earth, dying. Here's the part that I never would have said on my own. Dying to forgive your father. Now, those words seemed to strike something inside the heart of this woman that she alone understood. She turned and walked out of my office seemingly partially satisfied, thoughtful, contemplating, but calmed. And when I spoke to her again several weeks later about it, she said, when you said that, I was angry at the thought of it on the conscious level, but my spirit knew it was right and I had to go contemplate it and dwell on it and, and interact with the Lord about it. And the result of that was that uh, she said, I wish my father was alive now so he could have gotten the help I've gotten uh, because Jesus, Jesus has delivered me and healed me. And I know he, my father, needed desperately needed help. Now, every time we've ever told that story over the last X number of years, I'd say 20, 20 years at least, the response from people in the audience has been a similar understanding. Uh, the response has been, yeah, I, I don't understand the mystery of the cross. I don't understand the mystery of good and evil. I don't understand a lot of things. But there's something that resonates in my heart that says, if I will focus on what Jesus did instead of what happened to me, if I will focus on what Jesus willfully came and bore for me rather than focus on the evil that happened to me, somehow there is going to be a coming together, a union between me and Christ that is going to set me free into the freedom of Christ. Jesus will take my suffering in the great exchange on the cross he will take the evil done against me just as surely as he took my sin on himself and gave me his righteousness. He takes my suffering on himself and gives me his wholeness. And I don't fully understand that, but I will take that at face value because I trust Jesus and I'm so grateful to him for what he's done for me on the cross. These are people who have a God-centered cosmology that sees the greatness of God coming down to rescue little, tiny, insignificant them from the horrors that they have been uh, put through by the hand of evil, an evil that God is eventually going to annihilate out of the universe. And these people get well. But in the last five years or so, I have noticed a marked change in the way people respond to this story. Not on a large scale, but on a large enough scale to gain my attention. And it goes something like this. People will come to me and say, after they hear me say the story, especially the part about where was God? Well, God was, he, he was hanging on a cross between heaven and earth, dying to forgive your father. And instead of being moved by that story, they are angry over it. Or if not angry, maybe angry is too strong a word, because there's lots of people who've reacted this way, some angrily, some thoughtfully leaning toward frustration. And then some respectful and, and with a good heart, but simply saying, look, I, I understand that story, but it doesn't really reach me. It doesn't satisfy me. Now, let me put a parenthesis here and say on behalf of those who say it doesn't reach me or it doesn't satisfy me, that I understand that to some degree. And, and here's how I understand it. When I hear people say to suffering people, 
Jesus was there with you when you were suffering. He, he saw the suffering. He suffered alongside you. That, that's not very comforting. It sounds really like some kind of human, frail attempt to convey sympathy. And I don't need sympathy from even Jesus. I need compassion. The difference between sympathy and compassion is the difference between feelings and action. I mean, Jesus' sympathy with me is very precious if he's also able to act on my behalf. And you see, the word salvation in both Greek and Hebrew is always a, a, a word of action. It's not just a, a, a state of being. It's, it's a result of an action on God's, from God's point of view. God takes action on my behalf in order to bring about a good result. That's salvation. It's not just Jesus feeling my pain like a politician who wants to get reelected. It's it's some it's it's not just someone who's empathizing with me and giving me human comfort. We're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the incarnate God of the universe who has come and descended into my pain with me in order that I might be taken into his covenant with him so that when he rises from the dead, I rise with him. See, it, then it's about me being with him instead of him being with me. We say, oh God, please be with me. Well, God is with you, but I'll tell you what's a whole lot more important is not me, him being with me, it's me being with him. It's not, it, 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 there's a song that came out in the early 80s that says, here he comes up from the grave with my heart. And uh, that's, that's exactly the right picture. God, what God is doing is not just redeeming me personally out of my private pain for my sake, but he is redeeming me personally from my private sin or suffering for my sake but along with for my sake, for his sake, for, for, for the fact of his, his purposes being accomplished. And one of those purposes, purposes is, and this is way too big to get into here, but one of those purposes is, what is God doing? He is destroying evil out of the universe while still protecting free will. That's what he's doing. He's destroying evil out of the universe while still protecting free will. And why is he concerned about protecting free will? So that love is the conqueror of the universe, not force. God could force the conquest of the universe by power. But that is not his nature because it is not the nature of love. See, love is from God. God is not from love. Love is from God. Love is not something God looks at and admires and would like to be like, so he tries to be loving. <laughs> love is, God is love, the Bible says. The Bible never says love is God. God says God is love. So whatever love does is a reflection of God's true nature. And God evidently does not want to annihilate evil by a sheer act of power. He's after something greater than that. Now, what, what does that have to do with your private anger at my story that Jesus was on the cross dying to forgive the, the perpetrator? See, what was so outstanding about that was I would have normally said Jesus was on the cross dying to, for, to heal you, dying to bring healing to your pain. That's how I would have said it if I was going to be consciously responding to her her statement. But the Holy Spirit in me rose up and answered the question with a far wiser answer than I would have been able to do. And he, his response to her was, I was dying to forgive even your father. My intention was not just to deliver you from your pain, but even to deliver him from his if he had cried out to me for it. You see? Now, what I'm finding disturbing is the increased number of people, and I, I can, I, I'm, not, I'm not keeping records of it, but I, I've kept records of it in my mind. I can't give you a mathematical number, but I can sure give you anecdotal uh, examples. Uh, 
that uh, would illustrate the, the validity of my point that there is a marked difference in the psyche of people in the last few years who claim to be Christians, and I believe they are Christians, but their attitude is, okay, God, you better give account of yourself and explain to me why my life has wounds and pain and evil in it. Where were you, God? You better give account of yourself. Because I'm not going to believe all this Jesus loves me stuff and all this Jesus died for me and Jesus was there for me and he suffered alongside me and he bore my suffering in himself. I'm not buying that. I want you to give account to me. Why Why did you let my father rape me? Why did you let X, 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 whatever it is, occur? Now, you don't find any of that kind of thing in the scriptures because you have a God-centered cosmology in the scriptures, not a man-centered one. You have to live in the relative peace and prosperity. Well, it's really not relative, is it? It's the, the most peaceful and the most prosperous culture in the history of the world, where we have been protected from the the horrors that have been uh, the norm for most of the world, for most of history. I mean, uh, we don't know what it's like to, to be pre-Novocaine or pre-chloroform. Or, I mean, can you comprehend the amputation of a leg on, on the battlefield of the Civil War? Uh, can, you, can you comprehend the suffering of the world uh, before some of the many breakthroughs that we take for granted? See, a suffering world understood several things that we do not seem to understand in our all-wise modern thinking, our so-called scientific insight and, and uh, educated civilization. The ancients understood that God, the Creator, is good, and they, they discerned that by the nature of the creation. That creation is, there's a goodness in it. Uh, the anthropomorphic principle of creation is that man, the earth obviously was created for man. And that has become more and more scientifically underscored in the last 10 years. That the planet earth is not proof that man is so small he's of no significance by measuring it against the vastness of the universe. It's just the opposite. The vastness of the universe is evidence of God's amazing desire to prov to provide us a healthy environment. The whole universe works together to make Earth do what it does. If the universe was different from the way it is, Earth couldn't be what it is. So the, the whole idea that man is so small and Earth is so tiny compared to the universe it just proves that we're of no real value. No, it doesn't prove that at all. It proves the very opposite. That the earth was created for us. And the universe was created for the earth. And God is very man-centered. So much so that he becomes a man, but doesn't just become a man, but becomes a man who, who suffers on the cross. But not just the cross, he suffers the burden of the sins of the whole world on that cross and is is allows himself to be taken down to the guts of the earth in death in order that he might take into himself every man and woman, boy and girl who've ever suffered in the history of the world and bring them up out of his grave. Believe it or not, he didn't just die just to accommodate your convenience and your healing and your private answers to your private struggles. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he individually cares for you. There's no doubt about it. I'm telling me God loves the world corporately doesn't help me a bit. I need to know whether he loves me. But everything, everything he's done affirms his love for me as an individual. But somewhere in that affirmation of my individual value, I would hope that my mind would expand enough to, to, to see that he's, he's also loving the whole world. He's saving the whole world. Now, one dear lady said to me recently, who had suffered badly in her childhood at the hands of a cruel father, 
She said, you know, it's not the it's not the adult part of me that is asking this question. It's the child. The the the, the child inside wants to understand where where was God. And I understood what she was saying, but and I, don't, I said this back to her, and I don't know if she understood me or not because we were limited in our time, and this is a huge subject. But I tried to venture to say to her, you know, dear lady, it's not the child inside of you that is struggling. It is the adult that is struggling. Because you know what? A child doesn't have these kind of high philosophical struggles with justice and injustice. A child will just suffer and trust for good. And when the good comes, the child begins to respond to the good that is offered and quite often uh, re rebound out of even the most cruel suffering. Now, I know from a psychological standpoint, there could be anecdotal evidence that what I just said is not true. Uh, but I believe over the long haul, it would it's proven to be true. Children are far more resilient in the times of great stress and, and trial than than adults are. Because they don't have all these uh, philosophical demands that have to be met. Uh, they, they receive, uh, they, they, they endure the evil and then they receive the good. And I, you can rest assured, no child has ever suffered at the hands of evil or even been murdered at the hands of evil that is still suffering. Uh, those children are in the presence of the one who created them, and they they will, uh, Scripture affirms over and over and over, uh, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom. I mean, the kingdom of heaven is made of of a childlike heart, that trusts God and trusts him even in the face of when they don't understand him. So I tried to say to this lady, respectfully, it's not the child in you that is having the questions. It's the old nature in you that often tries to pass itself off as a child. It's not childlike, it's childish. And the childish is saying, uh, I, I demand that you give account to me, God, for why you let my life have evil in it. See, there's a complete loss of understanding of the true nature of evil. Uh, there's a complete loss of the understanding of the true nature of God. God is not nearly so high and holy as he really is in our eyes. And man is not near so fallen and broken as he really is. So the great gulf between the high God and, and lowly man has been partially filled in by humanistic sophistry that says, well, God, you come down a little bit and I'll come up a little bit and we almost can touch and whatever separates us is really your fault so you better come down here and give account of yourself and explain yourself. Now, I know that what I'm trying to address here is too large to address in uh, a single teaching. And I, I, I don't know that after you've sat and listened to it that you will have any answers. I think you may have some. But I don't know that you'll have any, satisfac any satisfactory uh, conclusions to your philosophical struggle. Uh, and you may be very angry. I mean, I may, this, this may really stir up. Uh, if I think I've, I've encountered angry people before, I may really encounter a bunch of them now. And I want to tell you, if that's true of you, you can rant and rave all day long, and all you'll do is become more evil. You'll, be, you'll just keep becoming like the evil that you're railing against. Uh, you will become what you don't forgive. You will become what you don't forgive. And if the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has not been revealed to you as the place where the heart of God is, is stripped naked before the world, revealing mercy and compassion and complete identification with your suffering, but not only with your suffering, but with also the suffering of those who hurt you, that he would 
that he would actually want not only to heal you of what they did to you, but heal them of the desire to hurt you. That he would not only forgive you, he would actually forgive them. If that is not part of your understanding, then you've got just enough revelation of Christian truth to make yourself miserable. And uh, the cross will become, instead of a symbol of healing and grace and hope and love, it becomes uh, a mockery of your uh, offended sense of justice. I mean, the very thing God did to bring justice into the world becomes to you a symbol of injustice and the very thing God intended to bring grace and healing and hope becomes for you a symbol of of uh, failure and grief and hopelessness. So in closing, I want to take you to one chapter. There's several places I could take you, but we don't have the time to cover all of them. But I want to show you a man in Scripture who had a very similar struggle. His name was Asaph, and he, wrote, he writes in Psalm 73 these words. And the reason you're not ever going to have a satisfactory philosophical answer the reason this message here has only stirred up more frustration and anger in you if it has the reason for that is there is no way to humanly satisfy your understandable frustration and anger about why you suffered there's not going to be a satisfactory answer it has to come the way it came for the lady whose story originated this whole issue that I'm talking about. She went home after I said what I said to her and got on her knees and asked God for revelation. Psalm 73, Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious at the wicked, and I saw the prosperity of, of those who are evil. For there are no pains in their deaths, it seemed. No body, th their body is well fed. They are not in trouble as other men are. Nor are they plagued like m most of mankind is. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The Imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from an exalted place. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 11, they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are all the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all the day long and chastised every morning. Then he goes on to say, If I say out loud what I'm thinking, I would cause others to stumble. I keep this to myself. But then he, then he goes on to say, and you need to read it for yourself, but I'm going to zoom through for time's sake. He says, I was so troubled inside I could hardly live. And then he says in verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, and there I understood. That when I first read that, I was going through my own example of this kind of struggle that I'm trying to correct us all about. I, I had my own version of it. And I was angry when I read, uh, I thought I was going to get, see, I, th I had a problem in a typical Western uh, thinking. I wanted the answer to the problem. Here's a problem. Here's an answer. Here's a problem. Here's an answer. That's how life's supposed to work. Doesn't work that way. I get to Psalm 73 thinking, oh, he understands me. Oh, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. And I'm, I'm expecting to get to the bottom of the chapter and have a neatly packaged answer that settles the question so I can forget it as if it never existed and go on about my business. And he doesn't say that. He says, I found the answer, but I'm not going to give it to you because I can't give it to you. I can only tell you where I found it and point you there. I found the answer in the sanctuary of God. 
The same place Job found his answer, which didn't satisfy me either. The same place Habakkuk found his answer, which didn't satisfy me either. The same place every other saint of God who has faced this mystery of evil, this struggle over why, why, why. The same place they had to go to find it and could not pass it on when they came out of the sanctuary. They didn't have a bottle of it they could give me. I had to go get my own. And I want to tell you, my friends, you have to get your own. You have to go into the presence of God and wrestle through this on your own. If this is an issue for you, even if it's an issue you thought you'd settled and it keeps reoccurring, you're going to have to go back there. But I'll tell you how you begin. You enter his gates with thanksgiving. You enter its courts with praise. You be thankful unto him and bless his name. For all of the good that is given is a reflection of the true nature of the one whom you are approaching. He is not a mixture of good and evil. He is wholly good and wholly righteous and wholly loving. And he wants to reveal his heart to you, but he'll not come down and accommodate your heart if it begins with a man-centered cosmos. He'll abundantly pour out revelation of himself to you if you will begin in the right heart and in the right context. And that is the greatness of the one above you who descends to you to deliver and bless you. Father, help us be thankful people. We ask in Jesus' name.